When I was a policeman in Dallas, there were a couple of times that I was deployed in full riot gear. And as you went out and stood on a riot line, they would give you various protective equipment. You'd put on a padded helmet, a pull-down visor, and if you were on the front of the riot line, they gave you a large shield. You've probably seen these on the news. They're about four and a half feet tall, three feet wide. They curve around on the sides. Now, what you probably have never really thought about is that these shields don't protect the back of the officer. As you look at the line, you'll see you kind of stand side by side, interlock, and you form this protective wall. And the reason they don't protect your back is because the hostile crowd is in front of you and other officers are behind you to provide protection and support. But as we turn in our Bible today to Nehemiah chapter 5, what we're going to find is that some of the people who should have been providing protection for the workers who were on the wall were not doing so. Those who were in the back within the walls were not only failing to protect them, but they were actually part of the problem as we are now facing an attack from inside the walls in Nehemiah chapter 5. Up to this point in the book, Nehemiah has dealt with a lot of uh, attacks. There's been discouragement. There's been mockery. There's been threats of war. But today we're going to find that he deals with the most difficult, uh, which is internal division. Nehemiah had a war within the walls, and it threatened to stop the work as it destroyed the unity of the people. So I invite you to look with me now as we read Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. It says, Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. For, for there were those who said, We are sons, our daughters are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. And there were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses, that we might get some grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax in our fields and our vineyards. And now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are are forced into bondage already. And we are helpless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Now, we see the severity of the, the situation. As we're told, there is a great outcry. And you'll notice their complaints here are not about the outside enemies, but they're about their fellow countrymen. They're against other Jews who were taking advantage of those who were not as well off. They were becoming rich as they were robbing their countrymen. And some of the people we read here are forced to sell their possessions just to eat. There are others who have already exhausted all of their equity. And now they're forced with, as they're faced with either starvation or servitude, they're, they're forced to f- sell their families, it says, into slavery to survive. And in verse 5, we're told that those who are buying their land and even the people are fellow Jews. Now, what's happening here is against what God's law said should happen. As you read the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus 25, uh, chapter 25 and verses 35 through 40, it says, Now, in case a countryman of yours becomes poor and, and his means with regard to you falter, then you are to sustain him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Do not take usurious interest from him, but revere your God and your countrymen, that he may live with you. You shall not give, uh, give him your silver at interest, nor your food for gain. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and, and to be your God. And if a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not be. Uh, he, you shall not subject him to a slave's service. He shall be to you as a hired man, 
as if he were a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. That was the time where all accounts were were null and void and people were set free. And so what God's law says here is a couple of things. If you have a fellow Jew who's in need, it says meet that need. If you need to loan money to them, then do so without charging any interest. It says and if he becomes, uh, if it's a case that's so severe he has to sell himself into servitude, you're not to treat him as a slave. Rather, they're to be treated as a, a hired person, a person that you care for as a hired hand. And yet we see that, that some of the Jews have a, a love for money that is so great it overrides their love for their countrymen. It overrides the law of God and their love for God. As we talk about what's happening here in verse 5, we read our daughters are forced into bondage. Now the Hebrew word translated as bondage here is kavas. And it doesn't just describe um, a slavery situation. Rather, it's a word used of sexual abuse. You'll find it translated in other places as rape. And so what this is telling us is the, the atrocities that are taking place are to the point that even these fellow Jews are taking sexual advantage of these women who were being sold uh, in order to meet their basic needs. And as Nehemiah hears what's happening, verse 6 tells us he was very very angry. When you hear about injustice or abuse, does it make you angry? Back in Nehemiah chapter 1, we talked about this, and I said that the anger we should feel when we hear about injustice or abuse should not just be an emotional response, but it should have one that leads to action, where we do something about the injustice that's taking place, where we're moved to act. And one of the problems that many of us face is that we're faced with too many problems. Let me say that again. One of the problems that many of us face is we're faced with too many problems. There was a newspaper uh, article that was written by a reporter named Lewis Castles. And he wrote about this when he said, The hardest moral duty of our time is to keep on caring. He says we're exposed daily to so much human tragedy that we've experienced what some have called compassion fatigue, having felt sorry for so many flood victims, earthquake victims, and war victims. We simply cannot muster the sympathy we know we ought to have for fresh casualties. But even worse than compassion fatigue is indignation fatigue. Many of us have seemed to have lost the capacity to get mad or at least as mad as we ought to get about lying, cheating, and stealing. To be indifferent to wrongdoing, to shrug it off, to laugh it off, is a symptom of of an advanced degeneration of the moral sense. Someone said we seem to have had a massive dose of Novocaine administered to our national conscience. Would it surprise you to hear that Castles wrote those words in September of 1972? How much worse has it gotten since 1972? You know, back then you had to wait for the evening news to come on TV. You had to get your your paper delivered in the morning in order to hear about what was happening. And now we live in a day and age with the internet or phones in our hand that every second are updating the latest disaster, not just in our community, but around the world. And so it's easy to hit a point where we have this compassion fatigue, where we are overwhelmed by all the needs, all the injustice, and we just want to withdraw. But God says as his people, we're called to be the salt of the earth, the preservative 
to stop the decay in society. We're called to be the light of the world, to shine into the darkness. We're called to have the answers to the depravity and the the decay of a dead and dying world by sharing God's word and about his son, Jesus Christ, who came to save us and to turn back the clock on all these things that are wrong. And faced with so much need, it's easy, as I said, to feel overwhelmed and just to sit back and be numb to it. But the Bible tells us to be angry. Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry, but do not sin. Now, that may surprise some of you to hear that the Bible says to be angry because maybe you've been told all anger is wrong. And there is a wrong type of anger. But there is also a righteous anger, a right kind. We see Jesus Christ exercising righteous anger in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, where he confronted the religious leaders of the day in the hardness of their heart, and it says he was angry. In another passage, he turns over the money changers' tables in the temple. He makes a cord of whips, and he drives, he drives these guys out of the temple, these, these merchants and money changers who had turned his house of prayer into a place of, of thievery and merchandising. And so there are times we are to be angry, and have a righteous, God-honoring type of anger. But the key to being angry is not just having the right anger, but it's also to deal with it in a right way. As we look at Nehemiah here, he has a righteous anger, and he deals with it in the right way, starting in verse 7. Because as he's angry, very angry, he says, And I consulted with myself, and I contended with the nobles and the rulers, and I said to them, you are exacting usury each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. I want you to notice what Nehemiah does first as he consults with himself. He takes a ten count, right? This is called thinking before you act. If you just simply respond in anger, what happens is we often regret uh, what we're doing. But what Nehemiah does here is he stops And he gets control of himself before he reacts. Someone once remarked, a whale gets harpooned when it rises to the top and blows. Does that describe any of us here? You ever risen to the top and blown your your stack and, and you find out the consequences of that? When you look at this word anger, A-N-G-E-R, if you have ever looked at the word danger, you'll notice they're just one letter apart. If you put D on the front of anger, you get danger. And the wrong type of anger uh, can be dangerous. And so what Nehemiah does here is he, he gets control of himself before he responds. In Proverbs 16.32, it tells us, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who, who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. I mentioned a moment ago he took a ten count. Sometimes we have to count to a hundred, right? Or a thousand. Or maybe even take a day or two before we respond because we're not in control. And so what Nehemiah does is he first gets control. James 1, 19 through 20 tells us, But let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. A couple things that James tells us there in the New Testament is to be quick to hear and slow to speak. And part of that is what we've just been talking about because it allows you to stop, slow down, get self-control before you respond. The other reason we're to be quick to hear and slow to speak is that oftentimes we don't have all of the, the information before we respond. Somebody will tell us something and if we just take what they're telling us without exploring all of the situation, gathering all of the facts, we can end up with a a skewed perspective. 
Proverbs 18, 17 tells us, the first to plead his case seems right until another comes along and examines him. Once we get the other side of the story, often it changes the story because whoever's talking to us will present the the facts that are, you know, pertinent to their side of the story that will build their case. But when you listen to the other person involved, you often find there's, there's more to the story. And so what Nehemiah does is he's, he's gathering the information. Uh, and once he, he gets the facts, once he's done these things, Nehemiah is now ready to act. And in verse 7, we see that what he does is he doesn't go around and gather others. He doesn't post it on social media to get a, a group on his side. Instead, what he does is he goes to the individuals. He goes right to the source. It says, and he contended with the nobles and the rulers. And I said to them, you are exacting usury, each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. See, what he does is he confronts the offending party. He goes to them first. And then when there's no repentance, no proper response, he moves to this next step where it says he held a great assembly against them. These are the steps that God has given us in the New Testament to deal with a wrong when somebody sins against us or there's a a point of correction that needs to be made. You can read Matthew chapter 18. And in Matthew chapter 18, uh, God tells us this in verses 15 through 17. And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. So what it's telling us here is if there's ever a wrong that's been done to you, as I mentioned, you don't gather a group, you don't get your friends on board, you don't post it, or Instagram, or tweet it so that people will all know what's happening out there. What you do is you you go to the individual, and you deal with it directly with the source. Now, if you find the person is hardened their heart, they're not willing to to listen or to respond in the right way, then it says you go up a step. And what you do then is when you're dealing with the wrong, you you deal with it at the level that it's known. I'll talk more about this in a moment, but first I want to ask you what your heart motive is in this situation. Last week, Jason talked about how vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's not up to us to seek vengeance, that God, who is just, will ultimately do what is right. And as God talks to us about confronting sin in the life of somebody else, the goal is never to destroy a person. The goal is always to bring the person to restoration, to repentance that leads to restoration. Church discipline is never punitive. It's always restorative. We find that all throughout the scriptures. God tells us in Galatians 6.1, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Galatians 5.15 warns us if our goal is to destroy the other person, we can end up destroying ourselves. There it tells us in Galatians 5.15, if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. There was a past issue of National Geographic magazine that that featured a a photograph of the fossil remains of two saber-toothed cats that had been locked in battle. Paleontologists had uncovered this fossil 
And as they showed a picture of these, these two dead saber-toothed tigers locked together, uh, the accompanying article said, uh, one had bitten deep into the leg bone of the other, a thrust that trapped both in a common fate. The cause of death of the two is obvious. They were devouring one another. And they both died, just like two bucks in a rut who lock together their antlers can end up um, just in a, in a death spiral as they die together, as they're locked together. And you think in terms of yourself, how many times have you gone after somebody and you find yourself devouring and destroying not only the other person but yourself? And as Nehemiah sees what is happening, he steps in because he, he stops this. He knows the destruction that's happening. He confronts the wrong being done. And if you find yourself having to confront the wrong in the life of another, the first thing I want you to do is check your heart. Ask yourself, is your motive to hurt the person or to bring healing? Are you willing to to step into a hard situation in order to bring about healing? And then if you think in terms of of confronting a wrong, remember I told you you're to keep it, uh, you're to go to the source or you're to keep it as small as possible as you deal with it. So if you have a personal sin that you've committed, who have you committed that against? Well, it's the Lord. So you go to God and you confess your sin to him. And 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you've hurt an individual, then you go to that person and you ask for their forgiveness. And you say specifically what you did was wrong. Here, Nehemiah identifies you're taking usurious interest. You're violating the law. And so he confronts the wrong. He's specific. And he calls them to repentance. If you're dealing with something that has to go to a larger group, both because it is known within that group or the person's not listening, say you're in a life group, one of our small groups here, our home fellowship groups at Wayside. Well, then you deal with it in the context there. When it says to tell it to the church, you don't come up here Sunday morning and tell the assembled body. You start with the body of believers there. If you're in a little larger group, you're in an ABF, our adult Bible fellowships, our Sunday school classes, then you deal with it there. You don't come and, and talk about it here Sunday morning on the platform. The way you would talk about something to the church here Sunday morning is if I, as the senior pastor of this church, committed some sin that disqualified me from ministry, it affects the entirety of the body of Christ, and it should be dealt with publicly here on the platform. Now, that's not what this sermon is about. That hasn't happened, so you can relax. But that would be when you would tell it to the assembly, the entirety of the church. And so as you look at some situation that you're dealing with, here is is the model for us. The reason Nehemiah brings the nobles before the whole assembly is it's affecting the entirety of the body. The families within are being destroyed and they're being forced into slavery. There's atrocities and things that are destroying the unity. It stopped the entire work on the wall. Remember last time we saw the wall had been built to half its height. It's between 12 and 15 feet high, but there's still more to go. But the work has ground to a halt because of the abuses taking place. And so as Nehemiah deals with the nobles, if you're thinking, well, he kind of jumped to the next step too quickly because he didn't give them a chance to respond. Look at what verse 8 says. It says they were silent and could not find a word to say. When they were brought before the assembly, there's nothing they can say to justify or to defend themselves. They're wrong and they know it. But even in front of the group, there's, there's still this hardening of their heart as Nehemiah has to again confront them. Verse 9 tells us, again, I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. 
Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations? The reproach of our nations who are what? Our enemies. Nehemiah says, do you get what you're doing? You're making a laughing stock of God. They're looking at us and they're saying, you, you, you people are no different than, than we are as pagans. And, and as Nehemiah is dealing with their sin, he's also following what we find in, in Matthew chapter 7. Because in Matthew chapter 7, it tells us in verses 3 through 5, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You know, so many times people uh, misquote the Bible and what they'll tell you is the Bible says do not judge, right? Have you ever heard that? Anybody been told don't judge because the Bible says we shouldn't judge? That's not at all what the scriptures say. What the scriptures tell us is the way in which you judge, by your standard, you will be judged. What you, the standard you use to others is the standard that will be used against you. And so as we look in terms of dealing with somebody else's sin, the Bible says you need to make sure your own house is in order first. This isn't in my notes, but it just keeps coming to my head, so I'll tell it here. You probably saw this thing going on in Iowa where there's this uh, beer thing. Bush beer was, um, there was this kid who held up a sign that said, my beer fund needs to be replenished. Anybody know what I'm talking about? All right, and so there was this great national feel-good story. This kid, instead of as thousands of dollars came rolling into his account, he decided instead of doing that, he was going to donate the money to the children's hospital there. And, and it's over $2 million has been raised to this point. Well, the Des Moines Register, and I used to live in Des Moines, Iowa for five years, so I know all about the Des Moines Register. One of the um, individuals, reporters there, goes in and starts digging into this kid's social media history. And they find that back when he was 16 years old, he, he posted some, some junk he shouldn't have put on there. He had some racist stuff that he repeated. And that was wrong. And it needed to be dealt with. But that was as a 16-year-old kid, and now he's a young man who's trying to do good. In this cancel culture we live in, everything is coming against and against. And how can we destroy each other? And so what ultimately happens is somebody digs into the background of the reporter, and you know what they found in the reporter's social media? Well, he had all kinds of stuff in his background as well, and that guy ends up losing his job. Now, I'm not happy about either of the situations. One, it's a warning to us today about all the stuff you do. I tell my kids all the time, whatever you put out there on the Internet will be with you forever, so don't do it. Be careful, right? It's a warning to us, the deeds done in the dark come to light. But the point of the matter is, this reporter was held to the same standard as he brought to this kid, and it destroyed him. And that's what the Bible is telling us. It's telling us when you confront the sin of another person, you, you need to make sure that your own house is in order. So as Nehemiah is talking about the user's interest, the way they're abusing their position and stuff, his own house needs to be in order, and it is. Nehemiah is not one of these hypocrites who says, do as I say, not as I do. Nehemiah, remember, is the governor of Judah. We all know about our politicians in our day who get rich by abusing their office and their position. 
And this was not Nehemiah. As the governor of Judah, he could have become rich by taking a cut of all the stuff happening, but he didn't do that. And in fact, before he was even governor, back when he was living in luxury in Susa in the palace, we're going to see where he was already redeeming Jews who were in slavery. He was sending of his own personal resource in order to set these people free. And so what Nehemiah says here is, how does it look to the pagans when we're paying to set our people free from slavery with them, and then we turn right around and we enslave them ourselves? He says, do you realize how, 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 what a laughingstock we look like? And he says, not only are, are we being laughed at, but God is being dragged through the mud because people are saying, what kind of God do you serve? And we already saw what God's law said about it. And, and what was happening is they were saying God's people are no different than us and their greed and love for gold is greater than their love for God or his people. And as you think about that, I want you to think about your own life here this morning for a moment and ask yourself, if other people were looking at you from the outside, classmates, people you work with, people you serve with in the military, people in your neighborhood, as they look at you, would they say that you're any different than the other people they know in the world? Are you any different than than those who don't know the Lord or call themselves Christians? Would they be able to say some of the same things that we're reading about here where our our love for gold is, is greater than our love for God, our love for possessions is greater than our love for people? You know what the Bible says people should see when they look at us? It's found in John 13, 35. There Jesus Christ said, By this all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love, that you have love for one another. When people look at you, do they see a love for other people or is there more of a love for your possessions? Do they see a love for God more than gold or glory? Now now listen, I'm not telling you that it's wrong to have nice things. I'm not telling you it's wrong to to want to get a promotion at work or to move up another rank in the military. Those things are great. We should be doing those things. It's not a problem with having nice things. It's when those things have us. When those things become more important to us than anything else. And that's what was happening here. They were setting aside their love for their countrymen, their love for God, following the law of God in order to grab all of these things. And if something has taken God's place in the throne of your life, then you need to make a change. And that's what Nehemiah is doing here. He's calling these nobles to make a change. And we see in verses 10 through 11 what that is. Nehemiah says, and likewise, I, my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Remember, I told you he wasn't a hypocrite. He was doing what he said to do. And he said, please. Let us leave off this usury. Please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also the hundredth part of the money and of the grain and of the new wine and the oil that you are exacting from them. He says, start by following God's law. Leave off the interest. If somebody's in need, if there's an opportunity to help, then do so. Give to them. If you want to make it a loan and expect repayment, then just make it the principal. And next he says, quit compounding the problem by taking their very lands that they need to then be able to work in order to earn something to then pay you back. He says, give back to them the lands that you have taken. 
He says, wipe away the past wrongs, restore what you've taken. Now, in doing this, it would have been a huge hit to some of them. Imagine they had been going out and they had been buying up houses and lands and vineyards. They had been building this real estate portfolio. They had all this stuff, and suddenly Nehemiah says, you need to liquidate it all. You need to sell it. You need to give it back to the owners. You need to close down your, your little you know, investment. It would be costly. You know, sometimes doing the right thing is costly, isn't it? It can be costly as we're talking about what we're, we're reading about today. Forgiving somebody who's hurt you. Like, I don't want to forgive the person. They made me mad. They hurt me. And I have a right to be angry. And God says you need to release it. Sometimes we need to make restu- restitution. We've done something wrong. We've taken something we shouldn't. We broke something. We promised to pay for something we didn't. And, and God says, is there restitution you need to make? It can be costly. I know it. And you may be sitting here this morning saying, you know, it's just it's hitting too close to home right now, Roger. Look, I, if I'm stepping on your toes, I'm sorry. I'm aiming for your heart. And if it's too costly, you think, I want you to look at the cross for a moment. Because I want you to think about what it costs God to deal with us and our sin. When we sin, we break fellowship with God. When we sin, we create a debt that has to be paid. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We owe a penalty of death. And God looked at us in our brokenness and far from him, our fellowship had been broken with him. And he sat up there in his throne in heaven and he looked down at us and he said, you know, it's just too costly. I'm going to have to leave my throne in heaven. I, as the creator, will have to become a part of the creation. I'll take on flesh and blood with all the limitations. I'm going to walk around in the muck and the mire of the world. I'm going to be there in the the suffering. I'm going to deal with their sin, ultimately having to give my own life. As I go to the cross and I die, no, too much. Too costly. Is that what God said? Romans 5, 8 tells us, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When it says we were yet or still sinners, it means we were at our worst in rebellion, far from God, shaking our fist at him, running away. And it says God came and pursued us. And he ultimately went to the cross and gave his life and he died, spreading his arms wide, shedding his blood and dying in your place and mine. It was costly. Cost God his son, Jesus Christ. And yet he loved us. And he died for us. And if you're here this morning and you're far from God and you're thinking there's no way I could come to God because I've made such a mess of my life, go back and read Romans 5, 8. Memorize that verse. But God demonstrated his own love for us. Put your name in there. God demonstrated his own love for Roger. And that while Roger was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. Put your name in there and understand how much God loved you. Not this much or this much, but this much. And he spread his arms wide and he died for you. And he said, he said, I'm giving my life so that you can have the gift of eternal life. But it requires you to come to me, to accept my death in your place. None of us here can earn God's love. We don't deserve to be called a son or a daughter, to be made a part of the family of God. It's grace. 
That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. God loved you. He died for you. It cost him that much. So yes, restitution can be costly. Forgiveness can be costly. And yet that's what God calls us to do. Now as we're looking at Nehemiah, he was one calling these people to restitution. He was one calling these people to repentance, to come back to him, to walk in fellowship. And in verse 12, we see the people in Nehemiah's day were willing to do that because it says, then they said, we will give it back and we will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. And Nehemiah says, so I called the priests and I took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. They repent and say, we are going to do this. Some of you sitting here right now may be thinking, I'm going to do this, Roger. When I get home today, I'm going to make things right with my family member or with my next door neighbor. When I, when I go to work on Monday and I see that person or when I go to school and I sit in the, the desk next to that person who's been making my life miserable, I'm, go, I'm, I'm, going to follow, I'm going to do these things, Roger. Have you ever had... A Sunday morning where you hear God's word and you, you're convicted and you say, I'm going to do it. And the conviction of Sunday becomes the compromise of Monday. Does that ever happen to anybody here? And Nehemiah says, okay, right now when you're in front of everybody, in the heat of the moment, you're saying, I'm going to do this. But he says, I know what's going to happen. As soon as the crowd disperses, as soon as you go back to your place, you're, you're going to fall back into your old pattern. And so to solidify their commitment, he, he calls them to make this, this covenant with the priest. They administer an oath. It's a legal uh, agreement that is made. It both solidifies their commitment as well as it creates accountability to those in the assembly. Because they said, we're going to do this. And as they make this commitment, Nehemiah gives them a visual picture in verse 13 of the consequences that will come if they break their vow. Because there it says, I also shook out the front of my garment. And I said, thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen. And they praised the Lord. And then the people did according to the promise. So, so what Nehemiah does is, remember, they don't, they don't have clothes like ours. They didn't have pockets where they can put things in. What they, what they had was a, a robe. And if they needed to, to store something, they would take and they would fold up a portion of their garment and they would tie it off. And so it created a fold and you would put stuff in it. And when Nehemiah shakes out his garment, he literally takes and he snaps the front of his robe. And if he had had a pocket with a bunch of stuff in it, everything in there would have flown out and hit the ground. And it symbolizes how they would lose their possessions. He says, you're going to lose your stuff, your house, your property. He says, you'll even lose your place in the community among the assembly. Another sign of shaking out your clothes in that day was if somebody was a sinner. Remember, Jesus said, if you go in and preach the gospel in some community and they don't receive it, he says, shake the dust off the hem of your garment. It was a picture of rejection. It was a consequence of what would happen if this had happened. 
And those who were listening to this, who were witnesses, said, Amen. And whenever we say amen, that word literally means so be it. When you pray and you end by saying amen, or you like something in a sermon and you call out amen, you're saying so be it. I agree with that is what you're literally saying. And so the people say, yes, we agree with that. So be it. Let it be as it is written. And what happens is unity is restored. The wrong is dealt with. Satan's attack is once again defeated. And as unity is restored, they were able to return to the work on the wall that God had given them. And as believers, what we draw from this passage today is the need for us to draw together, to be those who are unified, those who are working together, those who are protecting the unity within the body. Because Satan seeks to get us to turn from fighting him as the foe to fighting with the family of God. As we bite and devour, we consume each other. But as we continue walking and working together, our light will become a beacon that shines in the darkness around us. And it also becomes like a laser. I read an article once that talked about the difference between a light and a laser. And in this article, it said a medium-powered laser can cut through steel. But a, a powerful spotlight, which uses the same amount of energy, can only make the steel warm. You have the picture, there's a steel beam, and you apply a laser to it, and it can slice through it. But if you put the, that spotlight on it, as good as that is, it only warms the surface. Now, I'm not a, a scientist like some of you, so I'm going to read you what the article tells me happens in a case like this. It says, a laser can be described as a medium of excited molecules with mirrors at each end. And some of the excited molecules will naturally decay into a less excited state. And in the decay process, they release a photon, which is a particle of light. And the photon moves along and it tickles another molecule, inviting another photon to join him on his journey. And these two photons tickle two more molecules and invite two more photons to join the parade. And soon there's this huge army of photons marching in step with one another, and it is this unity that gives a laser its power. It says a spotlight may have just as many photons, but because each is going its own way and it's independent of the other and only occasionally interferes with the other photons, its power is wasted, and it cannot be focused to do something like cut through steel. But because of unity of a laser, its light is like an army marching in tight formation, and it is thus able to focus all its power on its objective. You remember, as we've been reading through Nehemiah, the walls have been broken down for 142 years. And Nehemiah and the workers will be able to rebuild the walls of the city in just over 50 days. Because when they're unified, when they're pulling together instead of pulling apart, when they're working together, they're able to accomplish with God's enablement this, this impossible task. And it's the same thing for us as a church and as individuals, as we pull together rather than pulling apart, we will be able to impact the world around us. God calls us to be light in the darkness. He calls us to change the world in which we live. It is decaying. It is dead. It is, it is in the grasp of sin. And as we've been re reminded today, Satan will do what he can to hinder God's work. He wants to destroy the unity we have here as a church or the unity you have with other believers at the base or the school or the place where you work. 
And so you've got to guard that unity. You've got to protect against a war within the walls. So as we close today, I want you to think about your life. I want you to think about the things we've talked about today and see which of these apply to you. Is there some area of individual sin you need to deal with this morning? Anger, gossip, disunity. Is there something you're doing in your life or allowing to have control of your life that is destroying your witness with those in the world around you? It it, it could be something that, that you're doing that you need to repent of. You need to seek to make right. And as we talk about restoration and making things right, whether it's confronting the sin in somebody else's life, first dealing with our own and then coming in a spirit of gentleness, as Galatians 6 1 says, follow the steps of Matthew 18. Go home and read Matthew 18 if you're unsure of how to approach the situation. And then as, as we think in terms of this, it will help us not only in our own walk with God, but in, in our walk with others, it, is, it will restore this broken relationship we may have with others. So I want us to take a moment now to go to God in prayer. I want you to ask him to help you this morning to see what's, what needs to be dealt with in your life today. And then I want you to ask him for the courage and the enablement to deal with these things as we leave today. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and I'll lead us in a moment. Lord God, you tell us in Psalm 133.1, Behold how pleasant and good it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. God, you call us as brothers and sisters in Christ to be unified, to support one another, to surround and encourage and and help one another as we go through the struggles of, of this world. And you call us, God, to be a light into the darkness for those who do not yet know the way. I thank you, Father, for making Wayside a a lighthouse, a, a place in this community to reach out into the world around us. And, Father, the church is not just this this building here at 1705 Northwest Loop 410 or our location out at Stone Oak at 1300 Evans Road. It is in every single home and apartment and barrack around this city and outside of this state where people who belong to you live. Each of those are points of light. I pray, Father, that you would help us to be those who are united and working together for you. May you protect us, God, from Satan and his attacks where he seeks to destroy our unity. We're not a perfect church. We're made up of people who are sinners, and at times we rub up against each other in a wrong way. And in those times, would we keep short accounts? Would we be willing to forgive? Would we be willing, Father, to come alongside and with gentleness help redirect and, and help people to come back together and to come to you? Father, in those areas where we've personally fallen short in our own lives, would you help us to see them, to have the strength and courage to deal with them, to make the changes that you call us to? so that our lives would be a light showing the love of Christ to those around us. 
We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.